there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. I just want to remind you that the whole conference here is about principles of the spiritual life. And we talked about incarnation, first of all, which means the truth of God embodied. Then we talked about sacrament, a visible sign of an invisible reality. Remembering that everything means everything, that life here signifies and is shaped by an invisible world. All the visible things signify the invisible. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will shine out like shining from shook foil. De Cossad wrote a beautiful book called The Sacrament of the Present Moment, and I would recommend it to you. I'm quite sure it's still in print. His last name is capital D-E, capital C-A-U-S-S-A-D-E. And here's a quotation. The sacrament of the present moment, the moment in which I am hurt, is a moment known only to God and me. I trust him here, I love him here, so all is well here, and all shall be well. I'll read it again. The sacrament of the present moment, colon, the moment in which I am hurt, is a moment known only to God and me. I trust him here, I love him here, so all is well here, and all shall be well. In the entire book is repetition of exactly that kind of thing. Every page is about the sacrament of the present moment. And it has um, illuminated for me a principle, which was just a principle for a long time. But I try to live by that, that this present moment, whatever it holds, is a sacrament. In other words, a visible sign of the will of God for me. And it is here that I am to trust him and love him and believe that all is well and that all will be well. The third thing we talked about was sovereignty, and we emphasized the necessity of our awareness that it is a mystery, that it deals with God's purpose and his control over everything. Then last night we talked about servanthood, in which we are given the privilege, the high privilege of being cooperators with God in his work, whatever that work may be. And we are given the privilege of living in company with Christ. Do you want to live in company with Christ, to walk with him and talk with him? Servanthood. My brother Dave is a traveler all over the world. He works, he has been a missionary and Costa Rica, Colombia, uh, Singapore, and he now works with the, with the David C. Cook Foundation, which requires him to go all over the world and find out what literature needs third world countries have. So he has amazing stories to tell of the people that he meets 
he was many times behind the Iron Curtain before the curtain came down. And when he was at a, a large world convention, there was a Chinese man there who gave this testimony that he was in concentration camp in China and was given the job of cleaning the cesspool, I guess they, they called it, what couldn't be called a latrine. But the camp was grossly overcrowded and there were not nearly enough, there was not nearly enough space in the cesspool so that every single day it was completely overflowed and this man had to walk through the excrement in order to do the job. And because he was a Christian, he was grateful for this most humble and filthy servanthood that he had been assigned because nobody else was ever around, as you can imagine. He said people kept as far away from that as they possibly could. And so he found that this was the only time in the whole day that he was able to be alone. And it was then that the words to a song that we sort of deprecated in our family, we among the hymns that we sang, this one did not occur because nobody could stand it, I come to the garden alone. And this man, Dave said, changed forever his view of that hymn because he said that became his theme song. I come to the garden alone when the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of Man discloses and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there by the cesspool, none other has ever known. And the man said, this cesspool became my garden with Jesus. Servanthood. Cooperators with God, living in company with Christ, no matter what happens. And do you know that nobody can prevent you from doing the will of God? Absolutely nobody in earth or heaven or hell can prevent you from doing the will of God. I hear many complaints from women who tell me that their husbands are not allowing them to do the will of God. They need to revise their understanding of God's sovereignty because they are not being hindered from doing the will of God. They may certainly be hindered from doing their own will and stopped and obstructed in many ways from doing things which they thought to be the will of God. That's understandable. But you remember that when Paul and Peter and Silas were imprisoned, they were singing praises to God. At midnight, they were singing in their chains. And it is said that they would probably have been chained with two guards, one on each side, chained to these guards physically. So you can imagine there was never any moment in which they didn't feel severely limited and confined and there was never any privacy, but they were living in company with Christ. So now let's talk about sacrifice. It is, for most of the world, an odious word. Conjuring up thoughts of loss, deprivation, and stripping. And it goes entirely against the grain in today's world. I looked up the word sacrifice in my concordance when I was preparing for this talk, and of course there were pages. The word occurs over and over and over again in the Old Testament. The Bible is full of sacrifice. And the Old Testament sacrifices were preparation and signs of 
the New Testament, one holy and complete sacrifice which was offered once for all by our Savior Jesus Christ. And he asks us to follow him. He asks us to love him. And love always means sacrifice. If I have a chance to talk to a couple who are planning to get married, I remind them of that. If you are going to love this man and love this woman, it will always mean sacrifice. It will mean, in a measure, loss of some things, deprivation of certain things, your privacy, your ability to make unilateral decisions, your name, your to, to lose those things. You will be stripped, perhaps, of your family and your friends if you have to go and move somewhere else. When Lars was moving toward a proposal, I realized that the possibility was very great that Lars would want to move to Georgia again. That's where Lars spent many years, and he thinks there's no place like Georgia outside of Norway. Of course, Norway is heaven. Georgia is the vestibule to heaven in Lars's <laughs> mind. Well, I didn't want to move to Georgia, and that was a big block in my mind when I thought about the possibility of marrying him. But I realized quite quickly that you don't make geography the deciding factor in a decision of that magnitude. So I just said, well, Lord, you know what the price is going to be, and if you want me to marry this man, you're going to have to make it clear. Let's never be surprised that love means sacrifice. And we're not talking just about husbands and wives. What could be more obvious than the sacrifice that's necessary in order to love your children? The sacrifice of your body when you become pregnant, the sacrifice of losing the figure that you like and you have one you don't like when you look in the mirror, you can't see your shoes anymore. And then not only the pain of labor and, and the real sacrifice of offering your body then, but from that, from that day on, from the day of birth on, there will be sacrifices, won't there? Sacrifices of your sleep, of your time, of your ability to make plans far and ahead of far in advance everything has to include this new human being that is God's gift of love to you and you in loving him or her offer your sacrifice a sacrifice of praise a sacrifice of thanksgiving sacrifices of joy but also sacrifices which cost a great deal a definition of sacrifice, man's offering of something that belongs to him, something precious which he gives away. The first sacrifice in the Bible was that of Cain and Abel. Cain was infuriated because Abel's sacrifice was accepted and his was not. And what can you do in a case like that but get rid of the person who has caused your anger? So Cain murdered his brother, and in the New Testament we find it interpreted that the problem there was not the material of the sacrifice. Cain was a man who offered grain, and Abel was a man who offered blood. Well, the Bible does not tell us that that was the reason why Cain's sacrifice was not accepted. It, the Bible says that it was because Cain's was not offered by faith. So it's not just the thing you do, it's how you do it. It's not 
the physical material that you use necessarily. It is what goes into that choice. It was a sacrifice which was offered by faith. And I just happened to be reading recently in some of those amazing statistical sections telling about Solomon's wealth. And on just one occasion, he sacrificed 22,000 oxen. I cannot imagine what kind of altars they had and how many slaughterers they must have employed and the rivers and rivers of blood that must have been running, but 22,000 oxen. Now, what was the result of the Old Testament sacrifices? What was the end result? The gift was destroyed. The water was poured on the ground. The drink offering was poured out. The first fruits of the harvest were burned. The animals were slain and consumed by fire. And in in this process, the sacrifice was thereby, in a mysterious way, transported to its creator, to God. But the things which were brought were destroyed, burned, poured out, and slain. And this is the concept which Amy Carmichael had in mind when she wrote her poem, These Strange Ashes, from which I took the title of one of my books, the book that describes my first year in the jungle. But these strange ashes, Lord, this nothingness, this baffling sense of loss, and Amy has a, has a way of writing her own spiritual dialogues with God in the third person, and she is always in the masculine, so that's her question to God. And he replies, Son, was the anguish of my stripping less upon the torturing cross? Was I not brought into the dust of death, a worm and no man I? Yea, turned to ashes by the vehement breath of fire on Calvary. O son beloved, this is thy heart's desire. This and no other thing follows the fall of the consuming fire on the burnt offering. Go on and taste the joy set high afar. No joy like that to thee. See how it lights the way like some great star. Come now and follow me. So if you remember the story that I told you last night about losing my informant, watching the woman die in childbirth, Jim losing the station, and my losing all of my language materials, all within a space of less than a year, you understand why I chose the title, These Strange Ashes. This baffling sense of loss, this nothingness, these strange ashes. And the Lord's answer, was I not brought into the dust of death, a worm and no man? Yea, turned to ashes by the vehement breath of fire on Calvary. And then this thing that's so hard for you and me to get through our heads. O son beloved, this is thy heart's desire. This and no other thing follows the fall of the consuming fire on the burnt offering. What did you expect? You gave it to me. You presented your body when you were 12 years old as a living sacrifice. You offered up your love for Jim Elliot to me. You told me that you would go anywhere that I wanted you to go. You prayed, work out your whole will in my life at any cost. 
And so when Jim's station is demolished with a flood and when you lose your language material, is that your business? It's mine. You gave it to me. I can do what I want with what you have given to me. And then, of course, we realize that we don't have anything to give to him except what he has given to us. You know, the old prayer, all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. When you put your dollar in the offering plate, where did you get it? God gave you or somebody the strength to make that dollar. And it's only a tiny little token of the overarching principle of my life and offering. This is a visible sign of that visible reality, invisible reality. But we must not be surprised, and that's why Peter says, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that is to try you, as though some strange thing happened. It happens to give you a share in Christ's sufferings. Was he not turned to ashes? What do we expect if we live in company with Christ? There will be sacrifice. What is the result? Ultimately, it's joy, isn't it? Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Most High. Let's never forget that above and beyond is the joy. And the joy will be given to us here on earth as well. We don't have to wait till we get to heaven for the joy. We were talking, I was talking yesterday with someone about uh, this matter of joy. When we're going through some difficulty, God doesn't expect us necessarily to feel happy. We're not going to feel good about the fact that someone we love is ill or the fact that your husband has lost his job. There's nothing that's going to make you feel happy about that. But the joy is something infinitely deeper than that, which is not incompatible with sorrow. Joy and sorrow are not incompatible. The two things can work together. And Jesus, when he was suffering so hideously on the cross, it was for the joy that was set before him. And the hope and the anticipation of that joy transforms this suffering. It doesn't eliminate the pain, but simultaneously we are given joy. And I have discovered that many times in my life, in the midst of some seemingly dreadful thing. I can remember waking up in my house in Shandia after Jim had died and realizing that the bed is empty beside me, and then suddenly just unexpectedly feeling a great surge of exaltation and joy, realizing where Jim is at this moment, realizing that he will never have to suffer again. Jim Elliott would never have to suffer what the weakness and deprivations and limitations of old age are. I would never have to fear that he would go into some dangerous place again because he was now with the Lord. And even though the reality of my widowhood and my child's fatherlessness and this house that I had to take care of and this station that I had to run all by myself, there was joy. And as Janet Erskine Stewart says, the one pure joy of one who suffers is the presence of Christ. The one pure joy. 
but then we're very often like the child who said, but I want somebody with skin on. Psalm 116.17 says, I will offer the sacrifices of thanksgiving. There cannot be any offering until we have received what God gives us. We have nothing else to give him. And Jesus himself offered not food and animals and drink, but his own flesh and blood. Not merely his service to men, but a literal annihilation. And it's probable that you and I are going to have to experience some tiny measure of that annihilation in some form or other. If we are going to be servants, what else would we expect? Since when Jesus offered his service to, to men, it, was, it ended in a literal annihilation. Look at Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of bulls, of goats and bulls, and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkled on those who are ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Now, not one of us could ever have had a clean conscience without that personal annihilation that Jesus himself effected, that personal, complete sacrifice. It is his death that destroys the works of the devil. That's what it was for. And he asks us to receive that cleansing of our consciences. It's our privilege of being his servants that comes to us at the cost of the blood of Christ. The blood that Jesus shed for me way back on Calvary, that blood will never lose its power. I'm sure that many of you can think of many hymns that speak of the blood of Christ. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow wounded down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Jesus put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Look at Hebrews 9:26. Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin 
by the sacrifice of himself. And in verse, in chapter 10, verse 12, but when this priest, speaking of Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That sitting down is a symbol of the total completion of his sacrificial work. He offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy, in verse 14. Now there's a very interesting combination of verbs here. By one sacrifice he has made perfect those who are being made perfect or holy. Can you grasp that? Jesus has done everything that needs to be done, but he does not instantaneously make saints out of you and me. We are all in the process of being made holy, but this process could not have begun without the one holy and complete sacrifice. So it is a finished work and an ongoing process. And I don't think we need to try to figure that out. It's, it's just the truth of God. And I don't think any of us have any difficulty accepting the fact or acknowledging the fact that we certainly are in the process of being made holy. I remember hearing Dr. Ironside tell a story of how a woman came up to him and said, Praise the Lord with me, Dr. Ironside. I never sin anymore. <laughs> and he put his hand on her shoulder and he said, Well, sister, what a shame. And she said, What do you mean? And he said, Well, who's going to save you? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, I hear people say, people write to me who, who tell me the same thing, that they have gotten over sinning and they wonder why in the world I talk about being a sinner, they listen to my radio program and they just don't believe that I'm a sinner. Well, they don't get to read my heart or see the way I act at home or all the other things that I do. But I know I'm in process and God is merciful and patient with all of us. Verse 26 in chapter 7, such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners exalted above the heavens. Now, this is the high priest who meets our need. Do you think of him as so remote that he can't meet your need? If we concentrate on his being holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, we might thereby conclude that he is not available to meet my humble human needs. The truth is combined in this verse. He is able to save completely, verse 25, excuse me, the previous verse, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And here's a parenthesis about prayer. We were talking yesterday about prayer, and I confessed my great difficulty in concentration and also in knowing what to pray for. And it, it just calms me and gives me great peace and joy to realize that the imperfection of my prayers is still received by God and it is going up like the smoke of incense and there's a great angel standing there with the censer 
and the smoke of the prayers of the saints goes up like incense. But also to realize that both Christ and the Holy Spirit are interceding for me. Both of them pray for me. That is a wonderfully liberating truth as well. Going on with verse 26 again. Such a high priest meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Now the great question, what can we offer? Were the whole realm of nature mine? That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands what? My soul, my life, my all. So that's where we begin. We give him our all. And I'm reminded of the widow of Zarephath in that chapter in First Kings, First Kings 17. Elijah, you know, has been told to leave the ravine where he's been fed by ravens and to go to Zarephath where there is a widow who is commanded to feed him. In Old Testament times and also in New Testament times, I guess, there was no one more destitute than a widow. Why would God ask Elijah to move? Now, the brook had dried up, for one thing. God could have stopped that, but he didn't. And he had been feeding him through the ravens, and now he was sending him to a much less likely prospect to provide for his needs, a widow in Zarephath. And so Elijah goes, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was gathering sticks. He called to her and he asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Now, she has certainly described the very last extremity of poverty and distress. And what does Elijah say? Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. Well, that sounds reasonable enough. It sounds as though he's withdrawing his request. But then he says, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have. She's just told him that the last meal is that the meal she's about to prepare is the last one she and her son can eat and they're going to die. But please make a small cake of bread for me and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. And the woman believed that she had heard the word of the Lord because it says she went away and did as Elijah told her, and there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. Apparently she had more than one son. The jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping 
with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. It's a picture of total surrender and offering. She didn't have much, but she gave her all. Philippians 2.17, Paul tells us that he's poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from their faith, from the faith of the Philippians. The same book, chapter 4.18, he speaks of their gifts being a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice. Hebrews 13.15, a sacrifice of praise. And you know Romans 12.1 very well present your body as a living sacrifice. So here are some scriptural examples of what you and I are given the privilege of offering. We can offer ourselves, our gifts, whatever they may be, tangible or intangible, our sacrifice of praise and this very tangible body as a living sacrifice. Now what is it that makes my body a holy sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God? It is the offering. It is transformed into a holy, acceptable offering, into a holy and acceptable sacrifice by becoming an offering, by my offering it to God. And the same thing is true of Brother Lawrence's service in the kitchen. Because he was willing to scrub the pots for God, that was holy work. The vessels in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, they were holy vessels. But what what made them holy? They were made of gold, which is just an ordinary, it's a metal, it's not ordinary, but it's a metal that comes out of the ground. Some of them were made of bronze. There were many other things in the world made of gold and bronze, but they were not called holy. The thing that made them holy was that they were set apart and consecrated for God. So when I offer my body, there's nothing intrinsically holy in this collection of blood and bones and muscle and cells but it becomes holy, acceptable, when it's offered to God. Just as when your little boy comes in with his sweaty little fist holding a smashed dandelion. There's nothing very valuable in the smashed dandelion, but it is worth everything in the world to the mother because it's offered. It's what he has to give you. And I can remember asking my father for money so that I could buy him a present. And my father graciously gave me the dime. In those days, I could buy a whole box of candy, box of chocolates for a dime. And I remember being so thrilled to discover that I could buy that in the drugstore and give it to my daddy. It wasn't the chocolates, God knows, that my father wanted. The Lord is a gracious, gentle, kind Heavenly Father who is pleased with the pitiful offerings of his children. The proof of the reality of our surrender is obedience. Obedience is our daily offering in the purest form of worship. One of the pitfalls in certain very emotional movements in the church today is that there is a desire for experience rather than for obedience. Uh, 
Now, experience is something that is given to us or something that we uh, find or in some measure arrange for ourselves. But obedience is clearly a voluntary choice. We can obey or we can disobey. God created us with the will to choose, with the power to choose. We talked about that when we discussed the subject of sovereignty. Here's the mystery of the sovereignty of God who can do anything he wants and the free will of man. And someone has said that God's sovereignty is crowned in his humility. I'm not quoting it exactly, but his humility in creating a creature who could defy him. Why would God do, th do that? Well, he created creatures who could defy him, I think, because he wanted to create creatures who could freely choose to love him. And we could not freely have chosen to love him without being free to choose not to. That's what freedom is. Obedience is a choice. And as my friend Barb Tompkins taught her children when they were small, happiness is a choice. And everything that I had the opportunity to observe was based on that principle. I was never in Barb's house very many times, but I've seen her a few times. And Lars and I invited her for breakfast one time at a motel. And to our dismay, she brought along her little four-year-old, Katie. And we were not too happy about that because in our experience, it's almost impossible to carry on any adult conversation if there are small children around because very few parents have any idea how to control their small children. Well, we needn't have worried because Katie was a well-trained child. And she was very quiet. I don't think she opened her mouth. Barb had brought along some crayons and a book for her to crayon. And she happily ate her breakfast and crayoned in the book. But then, finally, when she did get a little bit restless, she reached for Barb's purse and she pulled out a black marker. And Barb, without missing a step and in a very calm tone of voice said, Katie dear, this is not a choice. This is a choice. And so she gave her another color of a crayon other than what she'd had. And Barb told me that one time one of the boys yelled out from his bedroom, hey mom, he's making a poor choice. <laughs> Meaning that he was probably having a fight or something. But you must choose. Another maxim that Barb went by was when people say they can't, they usually mean they won't. And how many times have you heard that from your children? Well, I can't. And how many times have you heard it from people in the church? Oh, I couldn't do that. Because they don't want to. Where are the older women who are supposed to be teaching the younger women? I want to say right here that I don't think Paul was talking about writing books and doing seminars when he put that in his instructions to Titus, he was talking about individual, setting an example, being available, helping, comforting, surrounding, counseling, advising, on a simple, everyday, one-to-one -one basis. And you can ask Donna Otto for a whole lot more on that subject. What's the title of your book, Donna? Between Women of God, gentle The Gentle Art of Mentoring. Is it, is, it, is it out yet? I didn't hear you. In July. in July, okay. It's a tremendously important concept for all of us, 
And if you don't have gray hair or white hair, my advice is you be a spiritual mother to the younger woman, the teenager perhaps, the 20-year-old, and ask the Lord. If the Lord thinks you need an older woman in your life, then you just ask the Lord to send that person. But don't waste your time looking around for that person. Let the Lord send that person to you. You ask God, whom can I help to be that woman? Obedience is a daily offering and the purest form of worship. Christ's obedience is what made us righteous. Romans 5.19 And one of the most astonishing verses in the Bible is Hebrews 5.8, which says that Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And he calls us or the tumult of our life's wild, restless sea. Day by day, his sweet voice soundeth, saying, Christian, follow me. And you and I are going to have to learn obedience by the things which we suffer. And I'm sure if we had time here, we could have some testimonies of people who know exactly what that means in their own lives. So my life is meant to be an offering, an oblation, a gift, anything offered in worship or sacred service. And obedience is not something you gotta do necessarily or something you can't get out of, but should be for us Christians a daily present that we present to the Lord with gladness. My obedience to Lars Gren is probably the most crucial area of the test of my willingness to be obedient to God, because in my obedience to my husband, I am being obedient to God, even when I think Lars is being unreasonable. Can you imagine such a nice man being unreasonable? It doesn't happen very often, but every now and then. It is something which it is a daily present that I present to God. And let me go over once again. We present four things, all that I am, all that I have, all that I do and all that I suffer, am, have, do, and suffer. And with that, we will stop. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.